ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Motley Fool Asset Management asks, do you like the low cost and convenience of passive funds, but want stock picks that have the potential to beat the market? The Motley Fool 100 Index ETF could be the solution you've been looking for. Motley Fool Asset Management took the 100 top-rated stock picks selected by the analysts at the Motley Fool LLC and put them all into one simple low-cost ETF. The ticker is TMFC. For more on this fund from Motley Fool Asset Management, visit fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. That's fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me will be Todd Rosenbluth, head of research at Vetify. And we're going to go around the horn on several recent topics, including iShares launching the first defined maturity tips ETFs last week. Uh, 10 basis points, by the way, pretty darn cheap. And actually, uh, yesterday, Schwab chopped the fees on their tips ETF and also their high yield bond uh, ETF. And so maybe we'll talk about that as well. But we're also going to cover. Thematic ETFs. Uh, we'll take a look at this new LNG ETF that Vetify is providing the index on, uh, w- w- which launched last Friday. Uh, it's a new ETF from Roundhill. And then I do want to spend a decent amount of time discussing the SEC adopting amendments to the so-called names rule last week. Uh, I'm a little surprised this didn't get uh, more attention. This just sort of rolled out with not much fanfare. And so Todd and I will explain what this is and how it impacts ETFs. I'll then be joined by Matt Camuso, ETF strategist at BNY Mellon Investment Management, who's now approaching $4 billion in ETF assets. Uh, they entered the ETF space, what, only about three and a half years ago? And some of you may recall, they actually launched the first truly free stock and bond ETFs, as in zero expense ratios uh, with no waivers. And if you look at their first eight ETF launches, they were all uh, low-cost passive products, but they're now up to 16 ETFs. And if you look at all of their launches since that initial suite came to market in April of 2020, it's pretty clear they're making a huge push into actively managed ETFs. And so we're going to discuss that recent push and really just how they're positioning their ETF lineup overall, given that they do have both pure passive and pure active ETFs. And then to close this week, I'll be joined by Hakan Kaya, Senior Portfolio Manager on the Newberger Berman Commodity Strategy ETF, ticker NBCM. Uh, Newberger Berman just entered the ETF space last year. And of course, we're talking about an enormous asset manager overall, something like $450 billion uh, globally. But they got involved with ETFs last year, and Hakan is the portfolio manager on what's currently their most popular ETF, this commodity strategy ETF. So we're going to go in-depth on that product and really dive into the commodities market overall. And I'll tell you, I had a chance to uh, briefly visit with Hakan last week, He knows this space like the back of his hand. I think you'll really enjoy hearing his perspective on commodities and how an ETF like MBCM fits into a broader portfolio. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's chat with Vetify's Todd Rosenbluth. 
Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. $800 billion, I think we have to say that again, $800 billion and counting for an industry that is, is still growing in size is impressive. Todd, great having you back on the podcast. Great to be with you. Happy almost end of the third quarter, my friend. We're getting there uh, very quickly. Um, Okay, so we're going to bounce around on several different topics this week. Uh, You you know, let's actually start with the SEC adopting these amendments to the so-called names rule, uh, which that's part of the Investment Company Act. And I did feel like this flew a bit under the radar last week. So let me do this. Let me describe this high level. And then uh, I I certainly want to get your thoughts on this. Um, Basically, these amendments will require fund companies to be more diligent in what they're naming a particular fund. So for example, if a fund company uh, slaps an ESG label on a fund's name, or growth, or value, or even a particular theme like cannabis, The fund company has to define exactly what those terms mean and explain how the fund is actually selecting holdings based on those definitions. Uh, They also have to make sure that at least 80% of the fund's holdings fit that criteria that's laid out. And so at the end of the day, I would say the SEC is attempting to provide better uh, fund labeling, so to speak, right? They want to make sure a fund's name is indicative of what it actually does. And so I'm very interested to hear from you, somebody who always says, uh, look under the hood of whatever you're investing in. What did you think about this? So I think this is really good in theory. And I'll, I'll come back to the you, – you touched about the theory and what's intended. I wrote a piece, folks can go to ETFtrends.com called ETF Homework Remains Despite the SEC Efforts. I'm not going to read that piece, but perhaps I'll, I'll touch on it since you teed me up. Nicely. I think it remains important for people to go beyond a fund name and a cool ticker. I think it's great that the SEC is actually going to have harder rules requiring companies to have the name better match what is inside the portfolio. But what is inside the portfolio, there's a lot of discretion, discretion about how the index is created, discretion certainly if it's actively managed. You talked about growth and value and ESG. I want to just use growth because that's perhaps the easiest example. And I've, you've covered this, I've covered this, but let's just rehash it. The iShares Russell 1000 growth ETF. This is a $70 billion ETF owns companies uh, based on this prospectus uh, that have a higher price to book, higher growth, higher sales per share than the broader index. The iShares S&P 500 growth characteristics that it's using for the index sounds really similar. It's focused on a three-year change in earnings per share, three-year sales per share growth, and then momentum. Those things sound the same to me. They probably sound the same to many listeners unless they've read uh, what you and I have been putting out there, which is the stocks inside the portfolio are notably different. And I'll let folks go look inside the portfolio and we can perhaps come back to it. But the iShares Russell 1000 growth was outperforming the iShares S&P 500 growth by 700 basis points this year. So they're both growth. They're both following the rules that they put out there for the public. And yet what's inside the portfolio matters a lot more. So, yes, I think it's a good thing that the SEC is trying to uh, mandate clarity, but homework is still required. Yeah, I obviously 100% agree with that. I mean, I get it from the SEC's perspective. The the idea here is for that truth in advertising, and clearly the SEC wants to make sure a fund's name isn't misleading because the SEC views a fund's name as part of its marketing. And so they're saying, well, look, the fund name is the first thing an investor sees, and it's an important signal of what a fund actually does. But But just signal, right? Not necessarily exactly what it does. Um, all of that said, let me ask you this, and I am going to try to bait you a little bit uh, to, to make for an entertaining podcast here. If you look at the comments from SEC Commissioner Lizarraga last week, I thought it was pretty clear that ESG funds were the primary driver for the SEC pushing these amendments. So let me read these uh, comments to you. Uh, Commissioner Lizarraga said, quote, 
The commission observed trends that warranted targeted action. These trends included broadening of fund investment options and growth in ESG investment strategies. And then he went on to say, uh, quote, the rise in investor-driven demand for ESG products has been accompanied by a concerning trend in disclosures that fail to accurately support the underlying investment mix, often referred to as greenwashing. And then, Todd, if you look, I mean, there were references to ESG in the SEC's press release on this, uh, in the fact sheet that they uh, put out there. ESG was pretty prominent. And so my question for you is, do you think the proliferation of ESG funds in, say, 2020, in 2021, is what put the SEC uh, over the top on this? We just saw so many ETFs come to market that were labeled as ESG, but then when you looked under the hood, they all looked pretty similar to the broader indexes. Do, do you think that was a key driver here? So I, I certainly think that ESG and, and the growth within the ESG universe of funds, and I'll use the word funds, not ETFs, because even though this is an ETF show, you talk about ETFs, you and I banter about ETFs quite a bit, there are mutual funds that are connected uh, to the space. And we did see a wave of pre-existing actively managed mutual funds that were using ESG as part of their investment process from a qualitative standpoint and putting that instead of in the back of the house, making that uh, in the front of the house, putting it on the storefront that this was part of what it was they were doing. I don't think the challenge is going to be towards ESG ETFs that are screened. Um, like There are ETFs, and I wrote about it in my piece, uh, XVV that screens the S&P 500 removing companies for alcohol and tobacco and firearms. They may need to be more specific in the name for what it is screening or certainly, but it's in the prospectus. You get S&P 500 exposure minus a handful or a handful, uh, a couple of dozen or so of companies, or you have uh, ETFs that are intended to be provide broad market exposure uh, but have it, but have the best of the best within each of those sectors. That's ESG. That may not be ESG to everybody, but that is ESG. It's, it's raising it. I do think we're going to see some name changes that are resulting in this. But ESG is less in favor than it was a few years ago from a demand standpoint. That's probably going to be a driver of the number of products that we have coming to market. But if Issuers that are launching products uh, in the next three months are likely to get more pushback than they did beforehand based on the name of the ETF to make sure it is adhering to the spirit of the name rule, even if it isn't fully, I think, I don't know if it fully goes into effect right away, but because this is the chance for the SEC before a product comes to market to make it clear for investors about what they might be getting inside the portfolio. Yeah, I your ESG example, that, that is a good one. And, you know, in all seriousness, I, I think it's important to just reiterate uh, what, what I think you're trying to convey there. And quite frankly, I probably uh, misinterpreted this when the SEC first proposed these amendments last year. So if, if we take ESG, the SEC isn't going to decide what ESG is or isn't, right? What they're saying with this rule is, if you use ESG in your fund name, you need to describe exactly what ESG means to you in your perspectives, right? And then 80% plus of your fund holdings better align with that definition. So in other words, it's perfectly fine if uh, fund companies have different definitions of what ESG is, but whatever that definition is needs to be spelled out very clearly and then actually followed by the fund's holdings. I, I was just concerned early on when I first saw this proposal that the SEC would be some sort of uh, arbiter of deciding what's ESG and what isn't. And so I, I do want to clarify. And, I would, I, and yeah. I, would, I would add to it what is likely to be more of focus, in my opinion, from the SEC are actively managed ETFs that intentionally don't reveal all of their criteria, their IP, that's the secret sauce for security selection. An index has a, met, you know, an index-based ETF has a methodology document. It usually is relatively transparent about the criteria that's being used. I, I referenced earlier the growth ETFs. 
it, it doesn't fully explain why Exxon is in one portfolio and Meta Platforms is, is in a different portfolio. But it gives you enough uh, guidance to understand what the criteria is being used. I think index funds are going to be better off than, than active ones where it's more a trust us we're picking the right stocks uh, approach to, to disclosure. I, I guess on that note, and we'll move on here, but um... – do, do you think it's possible the end result of all of this is that maybe we get more watered-down fund names? Like fund companies and, and let's say, active managers, in, in your example, they don't want to box themselves in. And so maybe they go with a much more generic fund name. But the problem with that is perhaps that actually makes things more difficult for investors, right, because the name doesn't tell them anything at all. And, again, I know, look under the hood. I, I get all that. But do, do you think that's a potential problem? I, I do think – the names are definitely going to change. We might see that there's even greater transparency as to what it is that the criteria is. So it, it's multiple, you know, it, in the risk of going down ahead of where we're headed on, on thematic, ahead of where we're headed, sorry about that audience. Um, but thematic ETFs use broad terms and then they are targeted based on the criteria that's used. So could we see or I'll do an industry ETF. There's semiconductor, because I can do that easier. There are semiconductor ETFs that own semiconductors and semiconductor equipment. Should they be better named the semiconductor and semiconductor equipment ETF so that you know what you're getting? It isn't just semi-stocks? Sure. I guess that could be a good thing for investors instead of uh, just being surprised by what they find when they look in the portfolio. But, yeah, uh, I'm going to come back to Look inside the portfolio. That's the benefit. One of the benefits of an ETF is you can know what you own. You may not know exactly why, but you'll know what you own and be able to make better informed decisions. All right. You're giving me the perfect segue here, so I'm going to take it. Let's talk about this other piece that you wrote last week on how thematic ETFs differ from traditional sector funds. I would say other than having misleading fund names. All right. That's a joke. <laughs> but you uh, wrote specifically about how um, – Exposure to the industrials uh, sector differs among products and, and how there are some thematic ETFs that have most of their assets in industrials. But when you look under the hood, those holdings are very different than a traditional sector ETF like XLI, the uh, Industrial Select Sector Spider ETF. Do you, do you want to elaborate on that? I, I did think this was a really good example of both the naming rule and just making sure you're doing your homework as an investor. Yes, uh, and thanks for the setup. So I wrote the piece in advance of Vetify's equity symposium that we hosted last Thursday. I think you can uh, access a replay through the ETFtrends.com website by the time that you're listening to this. And we had over 500 people who were part of the event. Uh, really exciting. I chose this to focus on, one, because these are who our, some of our speakers were for the event. But also people tend to think of thematic ETFs as techn many cases being technology-oriented, whether that's cybersecurity uh, or cloud computing that, that we or AI-oriented ETFs. Uh, so these were two ETFs that were focused in part on the industrial sector, and we just touched on them briefly. Engine number one's Transform Supply Chain ETF, the ticker is SUPP. I can't say SUP without sounding like my 13-year-old walking in the door to me after coming home from school. Uh, and the other ETF was the Extractors U.S. Green Infrastructure Select Equity ETF, UPGR. Now, these two ETFs launched in 2023, so it's quite possible that the names that they have is the result of the pending name rule because you really get an understanding of what they are trying to do. Uh, supply chain transformation in the case of SUPP, which has 61% of its, of its assets in industrial companies like Waste Management and SCX Corporation, it doesn't own any of the top 10 companies that were in XLI, the Industrial Select Sector Spider. So uh, no UPS, no Deer, uh, no Caterpillar, uh, if, if memory serves. Whereas the X-Trackers ETF, UPGR, Green Infrastructure Select, it has 53% in industrials. Uh, it came to market after the uh, bill for infrastructure in a sustainable manner. Um, came out Carrier Group, Array Technologies, Ingersoll Rand, uh, Republic Services. Those are all uh, large holdings within the ETF. Again, the point is these are thematic ETFs 
with a long-term focus. They aren't sector ETFs, but you do get meaningful sector exposure through these ETFs. So, uh, and they ha- both happen to be global. Um, or I'm sorry, in the case of UPGR, it happens to be global in nature, which you tend to not, or international exposure, you tend to not get with a sector-oriented ETF. So again, it goes back to the doing your homework, understanding what you own and how it can fit into a broader portfolio. Yeah, I think that's that's perfect. I'm glad you actually walked through that detail because, again, I thought that article, which you actually wrote before the uh, your piece on the, the names rule, that it was actually the perfect example of, of looking under the hood, right, and understanding what's inside of an ETF and not just relying on the, uh, the names. Um, you mentioned the uh, Vetify Equity Symposium. I'm going to make this the uh, Vetify commercial portion of our segment here, which I know that's not what you're doing. I'm, I'm just giving you a hard time, but I saw Roundhill launch the Alarian LNG ETF last Friday, so ticker LNGG, and this does track uh, a Vetify index, the Alarian Liquefied Natural Gas Index. Do you want to briefly comment on that? I, I know you're always very proud of partnerships like this, as you should be. Do you want to comment on that ETF? I am, and yeah, Round. we talked about thematic ETFs. Roundhill is, is well known for its thematic ETF lineup. I'm proud of this, the index behind this ETF, and then that the ETF has come to market. So the ticker is LNGG. Uh, we were talking about sector ETFs. Most people get exposure to uh, the energy sector through broad market ETFs like the Energy Select Sector Spider or the Vanguard Energy ETF. Those are dominated by Exxon and Chevron. Well, what this ETF is intended, or the index behind this ETF, and thus this ETF is intended to do, is tap into the LNG, the liquefied natural gas. Uh, the U.S. became the world's largest LNG exporter in 2022, something I learned uh, as we were developing this index. And the global market is expected to grow 60% uh, by 2035, according to S&P Global. You don't get exposure to LNG uh, through Exxon and Chevron the same way that you would in this ETF. Chenier, uh, which is a pure play LNG company, is the largest holding. If we are going to see transformation and growth within the energy market, LNG should be part of people's portfolios. The index behind this was constructed on a global basis to make sure to tap into the leading companies. Tied to the space, uh, we're excited about this. Yeah, Vetify has indexes. Vetify has research on all ETFs. We will continue to talk about uh, how this ETF and other energy ETFs can make sense in a broader portfolio. All right, Todd, just a, a couple of minutes left here. I'm going to hit you uh, quickly with, with two topics. So first, um, I want to ask you about actually another first in the ETF industry last week, and it's funny. I told uh, Dave Nottig on the podcast last Tuesday that something new happens every single week in the ETF space, right? It, it, it's amazing. And last Thursday, it was iShares launching the first defined maturity tips ETF. So these are 10 ETFs. Uh, they have maturities ranging from 2024 to 2033. And the cost here, 10 basis points, 10, 10 bips. Um, I know you love stuff like this. What was your, your, your quick hot take on this? Yeah, I love that fees keep coming down into the marketplace. You know, we, we've seen target maturity ETFs from iShares and Invesco gain traction primarily in the corporate marketplace as well as in the municipal bond market. So to be able to manage the duration of a TIPS product, uh, TIPS offering, instead of having a broad range than most ETFs have, that's just cool. You know, we continue to see innovation in the fixed income ETF market. Uh, and it's great to see, you know, iShares again, uh, helping lead that charge. Yeah, I loved in the iShares press release on this. Um, they said these ETFs are designed to mature like a bond, trade like a stock, and diversify like a fund. I, I love that. I think that describes these defined maturity bond products uh, in, in a nutshell. Um, you, you touched on fees. That was the other topic I wanted to ask you about. Uh, I'm assuming you saw these fee cuts from Schwab yesterday, so they dropped their Schwab U.S. Tips ETF, ticker SEHP, from four basis points to three basis points. And then their high-yield bond ETF, ticker SCYB, they dropped that from 10 basis points to three basis points. So think about this, three basis points for high-yield bond exposure now. Uh, any, Any quick comments or thoughts on that? Yeah, well, first of all, it's it's just amazing to me how the bar keeps getting lowered. State Street, uh, 
a couple of months ago, I want to say, a, a month, six weeks ago, uh, brought the fee down for their high-yield ETF. I think it's SPHY, if memory serves, to five basis points. That This is it seems like a clear reaction in the case of Schwab. But high-yield bond ETFs are not going to be all the same at the risk of starting over this, this podcast about doing your homework. Uh, <laughs> the bonds inside the portfolio are going to be different. I, I know you've got uh, BNY Mellon, uh, Matt Camuso, coming up in a bit. They've got a zero-fee ag-based ETF, BKAG, that is the exact same. It's free, 0% expense ratio. That is the exact same ETF that you'd find from iShares with AGG. So those are like-for-like like examples. But the uh, the Schwab ETF and the Spider ETF uh, and the iShares uh, and DWS high-yield ETFs are going to be different. And so it's important to look at what the exposure is, uh, even though three basis points is certainly going to get the attention for, for many investors and advisors. So don't just rely on fees. Do your homework. What a perfect book into the segment. Uh, we, we, we couldn't have uh, done that any better. End with looking under the hood. Know what you own. I, I will comment, by the way, you mentioned the State Street High Yield Bond ETF. I was looking, I believe, yesterday. That thing, after it chopped fees, took in over $700 million in assets in a pretty short amount of time. And so I think clearly Schwab saw that. And I think you're right that this was a reaction to State Street dropping the fee on that product, and now Schwab undercut them. It just goes to show you that the fee war is uh, is both brutal and never-ending, right? But, uh, Todd, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, excellent stuff, as always. Thank you for joining me. Thanks a lot. Yeah, the investor wins. That's right. That was Todd Rosenbluth, head of research at Vetify. Fidelity Active ETFs combine the best of what Fidelity has always offered, an industry-leading approach to active management, decades of proprietary data, and a commitment to help you on your financial journey. All that and the flexibility of an ETF. Visit fidelity.com slash ETFs to learn more. ETFs are subject to market fluctuations and the risks of their underlying investments, management fees, and other expenses. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. joined by Matt Camuso, ETF strategist at BNY Mellon Investment Management, who currently offers 16 ETFs approaching $4 billion in assets, which is pretty good considering they didn't launch their first ETF until April of uh, 2020, so only about three and a half years ago. And Matt is now on the line with me from Boston. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Nate, good to be here. Uh, I've been a long-time fan of this show, so it's a pleasure to be on with you today, and, uh, and thank you for having us. All right, so look, it's interesting. I was uh, looking back at BNY Mellon's entrance into ETF. So you initially launched your lineup in April of 2020, and you came right out of the gate by offering the first truly free stock and bond ETFs, right? The BNY Mellon U.S. Large Cap Core Equity ETF, ticker BKLC, and the BNY Mellon Core Bond ETF, ticker BKAG. Zero expense ratios on both of those, right? There are no waivers or anything like that. These are truly free products. And no surprise, these are now your most popular ETFs as well. But then if I look at that entire initial lineup, the other six ETFs, uh, all index-based, all very low cost. And so I thought, let's start there because I think this will help set the table to look at your other nine ETFs, which are all actively managed. And and I find that interesting given where you started. So just talk about this initial lineup and what BNY was hoping to achieve there. Happy to, Nate. Yeah. So, I mean, looking back at uh, our launch in April, 2020, a very intentional to come to market the way we did kind of twofold thinking about building our product line, the way you would build a portfolio, right? So starting with kind of your core, data in your major asset classes, 
to have your overall capture, uh, you know, from a low-cost indexing perspective uh, sitting at your core. I think, you know, coupling with the fact that when we go to bring product to market, we look, look across our investment firms and see if we have a differentiator from an investment capability. Clearly, Mellon being a leader uh, in indexing asset management in the top 10 based on assets, buy rated by most uh, institutional consultants. The capability of indexing is there. They're actually the largest U.S. sub-advisor, uh, even before sub-advising our, our own ETF. So made all the sense in the world, again, from kind of a, how you would construct a portfolio, starting with your core beta building blocks uh, across asset classes, Mellon's capabilities, and then just looking at the overall industry, right? A lion's share of the uh, assets in ETFs sit in passive, mostly in market cap weighted, I think over 90%. So really going to where investor demand currently sits and trying to differentiate again with a core capability. And to your mention, uh, even now and, and with TAGA 4, uh, clearly coming and making a splash, if you will, in the ETF market when it comes to fee offering the ETF uh, industry's first two truly zero fee products. Okay, so I think that description there, which was fantastic, will probably answer my my follow-up question here, which is that, again, every ETF launch since that initial uh, lineup has been actively managed, and that includes two ETFs this year, which we can certainly talk about later. But just further explain the thought process here. Again, all low-cost index-based ETFs to start, all active ETFs since then. Um, just, Just talk more about how you're approaching this. Absolutely. And again, very intentional from our part. Um, you know, product development really starts at where is demand. Uh, and I think if you look across the ETF landscape, clearly active ETFs have been the front uh, of, of most uh, people's minds, the topics of a lot of conversations. Um, so we knew the demand was there. And then looking across our lineup again, looking at our investment firms, seeing where we have, you know, core capabilities that we can bring to the ETF market uh, to differentiate. Kind of our guiding principles of, of uh, product development are choice, quality, and experience. It's actually the tagline of our ETF franchise. You know, looking to give our investors choice when it comes to their ETF selection by being, bringing the quality of our investment firm capabilities um, through the experience of BNY Mellon as an end-to-end uh, ETF provider. Again, little-known secret in the ETF industry, BNY Mellon across our enterprise has uh, business lines across the ETF ecosystem from uh, asset servicing to sub-advisory to primary and secondary markets. So, again, using our scale and expertise to, to bring uh, our clients' choice and differentiate. If you look at the active ETF landscape, uh, continue to be fascinated by the growth. Um, mentioned a lot, but I think worth re-mentioning. Over $60 billion in year-to-date flows, which is over 20% of the total ETF industry flow, Uh, We say that's punching above their weight, right, with the active ETFs only making up 5% market share. But I think what's not talked about a lot is just the choice that's out there and and the product proliferation we've seen in in recent years. Uh, Little discussion, there's actually over 1,000 active ETFs available in the market today, right? But more than 800 of those have launched since 2019 in the passing of the ETF rule. So there's our kind of guiding principle. Okay, there is clearly demand here. How can we differentiate? And just given the makeup of BNY Mellon and our, our uh, vast offering of investment firms with their kind of core capabilities from multi-asset to equity to, to fixed income, you know, knew we had to be an entrant here and found a lot of opportunities in certain parts of the market where there was just little to no choice for, for active management through the ETF wrapper. And we had a very compelling capability to bring to market. Matt, we'll talk more about a few specific BNY ETFs in a moment, but I'd love to have you talk more about investors and advisors utilizing active ETFs? Because I know this sometimes gets framed as a uh, either-or decision, right? And I, I've actually been guilty mm-hmm. of that at times. This thought that you have to either go all index-based or all active, but, but maybe not both. So h- how do you view incorporating active ETFs into a broader portfolio? Absolutely. And yeah, it's funny. I've been doing this, you know, over 10 years now. And at the start, it was, you know, to your point, Nate, it's sitting there going, which one do I have to use? And no one ever told us we had to use one or the other. And it's really, uh, you know, just great to see across all of our client conversation. It's much more either or to how do they blend together. So we talk to clients a lot about, right, first start, you know, what is your overall goal? Right now, a lot of our advisors start with that with the client, right? What's your risk tolerance? What's your goal? And in that, you know, if your goal is more income-oriented, there's a number of solutions out there that you can have your core uh, positions across asset, your asset allocation mix be, be beta, but we can blend in active products with defined outcome like income 
or uh, defined outcomes like lower volatility, right? Meeting your investors' needs by blending two types of strategies together to achieve that outcome. And that's been, like I mentioned, a lion's share of our conversations now. It's no longer either or. It's what is my goal of the portfolio, and then what products can I blend together and fit puzzle pieces together, which, quick side note, love that of the ETF wrapper, right, with its, with its daily transparency. Really easy for us to understand where of all, all of our exposures lie on any given day. and makes it easy to fit these puzzle pieces together to achieve, again, a specific goal or outcome. So we've, we've, we've certainly seen the conversation pick up, but implementation – uh, has, has quickly followed in terms of blending, uh, even within our own lineup, as you mentioned, having seven passive ETFs and now nine active ETFs, blending these two ETFs together uh, throughout model portfolios. All right. So that makes perfect sense. I mean, this, this idea of a, attempting to achieve a specific goal or outcome and, and, and incorporating active to do that. But this probably won't surprise you, Matt. I, I still have to ask you the cliche question around uh, active performance because everyone's seen the data, right? It, it's hard for active managers to consistently outperform their benchmarks. And so I'm very curious how you frame that performance component, or, or how do you think investors and advisors should be, be thinking about that? To your point, the data doesn't lie and, and seemingly almost getting harder. And I think it's really important for, for our you know clients to consider what data is out there in terms of probability of outperformance, because it does vary by asset class. So we really break this conversation down into two pieces. The first is if you're just looking for that performance outcome, you know, looking at the data and saying, okay, what asset classes do active managers historically have a higher probability of outperformance? Not surprising, that's in asset classes where the starting index or universe has more options, right? So you see a lot of a lot better data maybe in fixed income, right? Because it's easier to pick the bonds that the manager finds attractive of, you know, a handful relative to the index of 12,000. Uh, in the equity space, challenging in say, you know, a 30-stock universe or a 500-stock universe, but you see higher outperformance numbers uh, in something like, a, you know, Russell 2000 or small cap or international developer, there's over, over 1,500 stocks. So looking for almost a market efficiency, but also a universe that just offers more choice and selection, which brings that higher probability of outperformance. And again, the second, just to re-mention, it's not just beating the benchmark. It's if you're using a manager for a specific outcome, again, whether that be income or lower volatility, are they meeting that mandate? Might not be outperformance of the benchmark, but are they delivering the strategy that it, which is the reason you bought it for. And really looking at the lens of, okay, if it wasn't outperformance of the benchmark, but they delivered on my on the goal and why I'm using it, I think that's okay to accept as well. Yeah, I, I do really like that framing. I think that's the way that most investors and advisors should be thinking about active. That said, just to be fair, I should note that the uh, recent Morningstar Active Passive Barometer Report that came out a few weeks ago, that did show active managers have done much better over the past year or so, more have outperformed than underperformed. Now, again, should we expect that uh, moving forward? Who knows? The data would say probably not, but that's why I like the way right. that you framed that uh, utilization of, of active. Um, with our remaining time here, is there a BNY uh, active ETF or two that you'd like to highlight, perhaps something that you feel is resonating with investors right now? Yeah, I mean, it's no surprise given when we started our active ETF launch in August of 2021 was our first. And then, as you mentioned, launched, uh, you know, a total of nine now that we've been in a market where really the two main drivers of all of our client conversations are around higher inflation and the subsequent higher rate environment that we're in today, leading to the kind of uncertainty and, and more of a de-risking mindset with all the, the volatility we've seen uh, across both equity and fixed income markets. So two strategies that actually fit really well uh, in this environment, again, is that kind of core complement or more outcome-based uh, type approach. The first would be our concentrated international equity ETF, which is ticker BKCI. BKCI is managed by Walter Scott, which is one of our investment firms. Walter Scott brings over 40 years of bespoke equity portfolio management, so a lot of history and expertise uh, within their culture. Uh, what I love about BKCI for this market right now is BKCI is true stock picking. So it's fundamentally bottoms-up constructed portfolio. But Walter Scott's looking for companies uh, 25 to 30, again, very concentrated, uh, which will be in the portfolio, looking for companies that have proven that they can have sustainable growth 
over different market cycles, really lasering in on what the balance sheet looks like, right? So looking for those fortress-like balance sheets, think higher quality type growth companies. Uh, but where the portfolio sits today, two metrics that I think are standing out in a lot of our client conversations are operating margin and debt to equity, right? So if you look at operating margin, that's really uh, how much profit a company keeps after it sales when considering manufacturing costs. Great indicator on how well the company can pass through the higher cost of inflation to their consumers. So you always want a higher number there. BKCI delivering a much higher operating margin relative to the benchmark, which we think, again, will help them combat this higher inflation uh, market relative to just a, a pure passive uh, ETF in this space. And then the second metric, net debt to equity, again, with higher rates, right, lower the debt you have to service at higher rates, the better. Again, significant improvement with BKCI. Uh, relative to the to the index uh, from a kind of combating higher rates perspective. And if we just quickly highlight performance, since inception, so launch this in the, uh, December of, of 2021, since inception has outperformed the MSCI EFA growth index by over 200 basis points. I think most notably, we have clients using this as, again, that core complement to so owning beta in the more international developed core bucket and complementing it with BKCI for that kind of lower volatility uh, growth feel. Uh, and in 2022, outperformed the MSCI EFA growth index by 400 basis points. So I think clearly delivering on on the man positioning uh, the product with uh, to clients with. The second would be our, our global infrastructure income ETF, which is ticker BKGI, one of our newer ETFs uh, launched in uh, November of last year. And what I think makes BKGI really unique, again, is that more defensive mindset and that kind of de-risking environment we're in. And, and we're seeing our clients kind of execute within their portfolios, uh, infrastructure just by nature tends to be more defensive in feel, right? They have stable cash flows. A lot of these infrastructure businesses have inflation passed through, uh, contracts baked into the business. So a great kind of, uh, again, lower vol, uh, but more inflation-fighting uh, type, type exposure. But what I think makes BKGI really unique is clearly, especially with, I think, the demographic that a lot of our clients are, are servicing, Income is still a really uh, big need, right? It's front of mind for a lot of their end clients. Uh, so BKGI actually brings a dual mandate to its approach. So it's provide you exposure to infrastructure, but it's also deliver a 6% or greater 12 months forward-looking yield. So again, a strategy that's resonating really well with clients for an income play, but bringing a little bit more of that defensive equity feel. Um, and again, executing since inception on that mandate, uh, outperforming the S&P, infrastructure index, which is our benchmark. It's actually a lot of, uh, of passive money in the ETF space is benchmarked to this index, uh, outperforming that index by over 800 basis points since inception. So again, it's not the either or, but when you complement these products within your broader asset allocation mix for these specific outcomes, I think there's a lot of benefit to be had there. You alluded to this, but one thing that I want to reemphasize here, and, and this caught my attention as I look through your lineup, um, all of your equity ETFs are highly concentrated. You mentioned BKCI there, you know, typically holds, what, 25 to 30 stocks. Uh, BKGI, you know, approximately uh, 30 holdings. I, I Only about a minute or two left here, Matt, but, I mean, I look at the two ETFs that you launched earlier this year, the BNY Mellon Women's Opportunity ETF, ticker BKWO, that has about 50 holdings. Uh, the BNY Mellon Innovators ETF, ticker BKIV, uh, a little over 50 holdings. Um, again, just a minute left here. Do you want to offer a quick comment either on that, that you know, concentration or, or on those, those two most recent ETFs? Yeah, I think quickly on both concentration, um, you know, it, it's really dictated by our managers, but I, that's really a growing up and passive. Um, that's really what you want to see, right? You want to see high active share. It's really giving you value for the expense ratio you're paying. Uh, in, in regard to the two thematic ETFs, again, looking at the landscape, we're seeing a lot of interest in thematics, you know, three-year net uh, flows, $68 billion, fairly split between active and passive. Uh, these two ETFs are subadvised by Newton. They have decades of experience in thematic investing. So trying to bring a differentiator in both BKIV, looking at a shorter-term time horizon in terms of the companies they look at and define uh, for innovation, which should bring a lower volatility maybe to some peers, and BKWO, uh, investing in companies that are looking to close the gender gap. I think another real big value out of this product is 10% of our management fee for BKWO is actually donated uh, to Girls Inc., which is a national nonprofit we chose to work with uh, that really focuses on equipping girls, specifically girls in underprivileged communities, and with the knowledge, skills, and confidence to achieve their full potential through advocacy, mentorship, and just providing them a safe space. 
Um, so I think, you know, that, that mission aligns really well, uh, not only with our company's view, but with the product. So we're thrilled to have that partnership and a, a little bit more of a value add to the product uh, as well. On a BKIV, is that sort of like an ARK type fund, an ARKK? Uh, you, you mentioned maybe perhaps with some lower volatility. Similar, yeah, similar in the approach. Again, the, the big, I think, differentiator is how we view uh, time horizons, right? So uh, not taking as long of a time horizon, I think, as some of our competitors should bring that lower volatility feel. So only expecting these companies to deliver that increased sales growth we'd expect from their innovation in a two- to three-year time horizon, while waiting 10 can bring volatility. So hoping to bring that lower volatility profile to an innovation strategy to hopefully keep investors uh, in the strategy for that strategic holding period and not in and out just based on performance because of an increased or heightened volatility profile. Well, Matt, really enjoyed connecting this week. Again, I, I love the perspective on uh, active management. Thank you for joining me. Nate, it was our pleasure. Thanks again for having us. That was Matt Camuso, ETF strategist at BNY Mellon Investment Management. Are you looking for a passive ETF that isn't so passive? The Motley Fool 100 Index ETF ticker TMFC is an index fund that's filled with high-conviction stock picks from real professional analysts. It puts the 100 top-rated stock picks from the analysts at the Motley Fool LLC into one simple low-cost ETF. For more on this fund from Motley Fool Asset Management, visit fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. That's fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. My last guest this week, certainly not least, is Hakan Kaya, Senior Portfolio Manager on the Newberger Berman Commodity Strategy ETF, ticker symbol NBCM. So Newberger Berman entered the ETF space last year. They now have four ETFs, about $330 million in assets, though, of course, Newberger Berman manages some $450 billion in assets, a globally huge player in the asset management space. But they are now involved with ETFs. And their most popular ETF is this Commodity Strategy ETF, which will obviously be our uh, focus this week. Hakan is now joining me from London. Hakan, it's a, a pleasure. Welcome to the podcast. And uh, Thank you, Nathan. Thanks for having me. All right. So let's uh, jump right in here on the ETF, and then we can certainly broaden out and discuss the commodities market overall a bit later. Uh, so the Newberger Berman Commodity Strategy ETF is uh, obviously actively managed by you. Uh, this invests in futures contracts on assets uh, such as oil, uh, natural gas, agricultural products, metals, et cetera. Just uh, take us through the approach here. Yeah, sure, Nathan. So the, the fund employs this broad-based active commodity strategy. It's a pure commodity play. Uh, it gives direct exposure to 28 different commodities in six uh, different commodity sectors. It is fundamentally driven. It chases inventory scarcity. And it is also volatility control to deal with the, the drawdowns to really make the asset class um, um, digestible in a sense. And our aim is really to deliver an effective high-inflation beta, high-octane, high-real-return you know, solution, you know, something investors can use uh, strategically as a store of value. But also, I think we would like to serve tactical needs, too, like you know, delivering these kind of like ideas around thematic plays, like betting on global growth or energy transition or China outperforms or something like you know, central bank bazookas along the way, or dealing with, you know, rising fiscal risks, government debts, etc. I just mean to say, you know, the fund can solve a variety of shorter term uh, investment risks as well, despite being, you know, strategic in its nature. So when I look at the space, Nathan, we certainly see it filling a, a gap. Uh, it has a great track record. The strategy, the composite beat its benchmark 14 years in a row since its inception. It has size. It is liquid. And I like to say it's priced at a very uh, good level, very competitive and comparable to the passive alternatives that we see in this space. We are very, very excited being accessible now in this space. And also times are getting you know, more opportune for the asset class too. You mentioned the long track record on this strategy. This ETF was converted from a mutual fund, correct? And you were previously the uh, PM on that for 10-plus years. Is that correct? 
That's right. That's right. So um, the story is we really started this strategy back in 2010. And, and in 2012, we started offering it as a mutual fund form. And in the Q3 of last year, we converted it uh, into its current form, an ETF form. And, uh, and there are a few reasons we decided to do that. And it, the idea really came from years of discussions with sales channels, family offices, retail investors, financial advisors, you know, lots of advisors, they, they, they implement their own risk management too, and they want that daily transparency of what they're holding. They want that li uh, liquidity, intraday liquidity. So the ETF, it, it, it allows all that and plus, uh, plus the cost effectiveness. So I can say, you know, I guess from experience, I can definitely say we are reaching a wider spectrum of audience with this ETF and definitely having more conversations. In terms of competing products out there, uh, the most popular commodity futures ETF is currently the Invesco Optimum Yield Diversified Commodity Strategy, no K-1 ETF, ticker PDBC. This is also technically an active product, which you can certainly speak to that. But would you mind offering a quick compare and contrast here? I, I just think that could be helpful in highlighting NBCM. Sure, definitely, yeah. I think, you know, um, PDBC is one of the big elephants in the room. Um, you know, there's no secret around that. Uh, but when you look at its, you know, construction, it's a yearly rebalanced fixed-weighted commodity index. And when you look at its construction philosophy, I think the weights are, you know, in a way determined by some sort of backward-looking production level uh, assessments, which means, suffers from certain aspects of production weighting logic in this space, you know, that comes with, you know, passive benchmarks. And also it seems to have a risk concentration in energy. We are a little bit different here. Actually, not a little bit, it's quite different. We choose commodities dynamically as opposed to PDBC, you know, fixed weighting. Uh, we see, we choose commodities dynamically where we see future scarcity appeal uh, uh, of commodities and size the bets in a dynamic, you know, risk-based manner. So unlike PDBC, you know, in a sense, if I may, uh, you know, summarize, we follow this idea of scarcity at a reasonable risk philosophy. We have ability to gear up and down portfolio, uh, you know, exposure to the asset class tactically, to the upside tactically, to the downside, reduce beta, you know, especially when the asset class is facing risks, either by reducing gross exposures or kind of like doing sector rotation dynamically. And I like to say, you know, when you look at this, usually, you know, the devil is in the details and you see, you know, this idea about, you know, rebalancing frequency becomes very, very important. And, you know, it also similar, you know, with PDBC, BCOM, GSCI, these are yearly rebalanced indices. And what happens in years like 2022 is, you see, you know, natural gas goes up, you know, 150, 200 per, uh, percent during the year, it reaches a peak. And due to market drift, uh, these funds, these passive implementations, they buy more and more natural gas. And, you know, when natural gas you know, implied walls reach, you know, 160, 70 uh, percent. At that point, in the middle of the year, you know, when you are managing a portfolio, it only makes sense to make, uh, to take profits and manage the risk downside going forward at those kind of implied walls, which is something what we do in this, uh, you know, fund, which is what we did in last year. But in these passive benchmarks, yearly rebalanced benchmarks, it is something that, you know, potentially investors can miss on the downside, really hedging the downside. Uh, so volatility is something that is very important in this asset class, I like to say, and we would like to manage it as best as we can to both kind of like participate on the upside and also, you know, uh, keep the profits by hedging the downside. One thing I like about PDBC, Nathan, is as opposed to this Goldman Sachs Commodity Index or the Bloomberg Commodity Index, they do pay attention to the contract roles, the role selection, contract selection. 
and at least try to find a you know solution for when you know these uh, commodity contracts are roll costly, what, what we call in those environments like contango. But unfortunately, when you look at the details, at times this index is programmed to compare roll spreads that are you know not necessarily comparable due to seasonalities at certain segments of the commodity curves where you know there are you know obvious seasonal price differentials, right? These are not arbitrageable, you know, price differentials or what we call rolls. They are, you know, usually efficiently priced and they don't create any outsized uh, roll returns. What we do instead in this fund is to estimate these implied roll yields uh, of all the contracts we are interested in. After clearing the clutter, clearing the noise, you know, seasonalities and choose those contracts that offer really pure roll yields after adjusting with execution costs, right? And that whole transaction aware, transaction cost aware, you know, role selection is, I think, what gives us the capacity so we don't get eaten alive by high uh, bid-ask spreads, despite where, you know, you can see uh, high implied role yields. Hukan, a few minutes left here. If we look at the performance of commodities, uh, if you look last year, this was one of the best performing asset classes when just about everything else what was negative. But you look this year, commodities have lag. And I'm curious why you think that is, especially if there's this growing thought of a soft landing scenario. And I'm not saying that's going to happen, but I would say that certainly seems much more plausible than it did earlier this year. So why are commodities lagging? Yeah, sure. Yeah. And when you look at the, you know, recent history, right, 2020, 2022, this was, you know, fueled by very easy conditions on the monetary policy, fiscal easing, super, you know, demand boost from redistributional, you know, policies oriented around, you know, these income constraints who really spent that money when they received it and they created that volume of the demand. Uh, and on top of that, that kind of demand, it just met, it, it wasn't met with, with the supply due to the, 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 the huge underinvestment that uh, regime that we uh, came out of in the 2010s. So capacity was in existence. Uh, on, on top of that, you had this geopolitical tail risk of Russia, Ukraine. So net, net, last year, that was a perfect storm. At some point, stocks, you know, bonds were down two handles, commodities, some of them, you know, they are up three, four handles. So that's, the, that's what commodities do. They provide that convex upside, like an insurance on, 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 on inflation, right? This year, uh, what's going on is I interpret the lag, especially compared to stocks, is driven by risk aversion and sentiment, not necessarily by any fundamental, you know, uh, outcomes. In almost all sectors, uh, we, we observe, we see rising demand and no, you know, meaningful deployment of CapEx. And we are still achieving on inventory. So when you look at it, there has been no supply-demand issues to cause such declines in, in, the, in, the, in the prices we saw this year. So I think commodities, in a sense, were the weapon of choice to play recession. Most investors, they didn't want to sell stocks. They didn't want to touch bonds. So commodities seems like the easy recession bet. But looking forward, you see almost all commodity sectors pr- priced in a steep recession now. But, you know, stocks and you know, bonds so far haven't. So I'll, any soft landing, any no landing news will likely, I think, potentially increase rates further. I think that will have an implication on stocks, especially large-cap stocks, due to rate sensitivity. They may get pulled down uh, along with bonds. But commodities, you see, if there's no problem with the economy, any economic uptick, it may come to a realization that there are physical realities in, uh, in, in commodities, super micro fundamentals. You know, people can start to appreciate this, and then they will you know, uh, start pricing in the economic uptick. I think we've seen last two, two months the, the, the uptick in energy. Uh, the rest of the sectors has so far not participated, but the rest of the year or going forward in the next few quarters, I think especially metals will uh, probably follow the energies. On that note, just in terms of owning commodities moving forward, I'd love to have you give us the case for investors and advisors making that allocation to the commodity space, because my experience has been this can be a bit polarizing. I I think some investors view commodities as more of a tactical play versus a longer term strategic allocation. And so they just decide they don't want to be in the business of making tactical calls. 
And so I'm curious what you view as that longer-term strategic um, allocation use case. And if you also want to fold in here uh, just owning futures-based ETFs versus, say, commodity-linked equity ETFs, that goes into that allocation decision as well. How, how would you frame all that? Sure, yeah. I think, you know, look, I think there's a little bit of a recency bias here in the sense that a lot of people are observing what has happened in the past 10, 15 years, and I have to say commodities didn't serve any tactical purpose or any strategic purpose from 2010s to 2020s. And But I like to look forward, and looking you know, uh, forward, I see structural forces at play that will make the case for commodities both tactically and also strategically too for you know, long-term appreciation. And you know, there are you know, very forceful factors. You know, there is supply underinvestment. It's still an issue. Even prices have substantially come up since the, you know, the COVID pandemic. You know, besides UAE, you see, we don't have any region who invest in it to bring you know, meaningful capacity, especially in the oil markets. And you know, we are experiencing what, what I call this twilight in, 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 in shale. Like producers are you know, uh, now uh, pr- promising the, to return the, the money to shareholders for cash flow discipline. But you see, when you, you know, return the cash to the shareholders, it doesn't return to the, the barrels, to the, to the economy. So there is this unresolvable, you know, supply issue at play. And on the demand side, I think, you know, investors should keep in mind, either tactically or strategically, you know, there are three sources of, you know, potential large demand. One is this very metal-intensive policy-driven demand coming from what we call the you know, energy transition, right? There, there are, you know, redistributional policies at play, you know, keeping, you know, income constraint healthy, and that creates demand. And and finally, which is very different today compared to the uh, before, there's, you know, deglobalization that requires reshoring, onshoring, nearshoring, that, that, that requires this hoarding of commodities that will create demand. So we are, this is not the 2010s anymore, right? Inflation is a real threat, especially cost-push inflation and commodity-driven inflation. It has potential to shape the uh, future macro outcomes. But unfortunately, you know, uh, there is not much, you know, central banks or Fed can do, right? Commodity supply decisions or these things are out of the control of central banks. It is hard to assume that, you know, that will be any sort of like a Fed put to take us out of this uh, supply trouble. So I really think it leaves, you know, uh, commodities at an opportune place as a good hedge for these kind of what I would like to say uncontrollable inflation problems. And, yeah, it has not solved any problems in a disinflationary environment in the past 15 years, but I think, you know, Looking forward, think things are different, and it, it tends to be more inflationary, and commodities have a role in, 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 in strategic portfolios. Regarding what's, you know, how to best execute this, I really think uh, commodities' direct exposures may have some benefit over equity linked because, you know, I see, you know, investors, they tend to trade. There's a tendency to trade whatever they are familiar with, and there's a little bit of a bias of buying commodity producers, right, because they're equity stocks. We know how to trade them. But I would like to say, if we are after diversification, if we are after, you know, true inflation protection, commodity producers may not necessarily be the best bang for the buck. And why is that? You see, first of all, they, they, they come with stock market betas. So the fate of your equity... Uh, you know, uh, exposures will determine the, the fate of your, you know, bets. So it, it's, it doesn't necessarily solve the diversification issue. And when you look at the betas of an, uh, something like an energy sector, ETFs, for example, it has betas of 75, you know, to, to producers, miners have around one beta. So you're getting that stock beta that you might not necessarily want in your portfolio. And from another perspective, when you look at the commodity betas of these commodity produce, uh, producers, you see, for example, even an energy producer says about, you know, 0.3 beta to something like Brent. And why? Why? Because, you know, uh, they, they are not as volatile as the underlying commodity. Like, the, 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 they don't provide that good volatility, I like to say, the powerful volatility that you need when, you know, uh, price pressures come in. And they also, unfortunately, do hedging and tap the upside. And finally, I'd like to say, you know, there are a lot of disruptions going on, big changes, and ESG is 
uh, one of it. And all this ESG investing, it's a, tail, uh, it's a headwind for the producers. But any headwind for the producers is a tailwind for the underlying commodities. So net-net, I like to say, you know, commodities, they don't have these, uh, you know, diversification issues or, uh, you know, inflation data issues that the producers are, uh, uh, are facing, and they provide the true potential power, pure power of hedging the inflation. So I like to say, you know, uh, the, the, the data speaks for itself, right? Just compare an energy ETF equity ETF to uh, an EMP ETF to what the uh, rolling futures program uh, provided from 2020 to 2022. And, you know, you'll clearly see what I'm talking about. Well, Hakan, excellent uh, insight this week. Really appreciate the time and the uh, deep dive into the commodity space. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure, Nathan. Thanks for having me. That was Hakan Kaya, Senior Portfolio Manager on the Newberger Berman Commodity Strategy ETF. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Fidelity Investments. If you would like to learn more about Fidelity ETFs, you can visit fidelity.com slash ETFs. Next week, two excellent guests for you. I'll be joined by FM Investments' Alex Morris. So we'll discuss FM filing for a mutual fund share class of their ETFs, mutual fund share class. And then Vanguard's Rich Powers will explain how they're helping everyday investors access the private equity space. Should be interesting. Until then, have a great week, everyone.